the scripture reading for today is Luke 14, verses 15 to 24. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Thank you, Sherry. She did such a great job sharing today and my heart is with her because my kids are all so far away, but thank you so much. She's, I think, a little jet-lagged this morning, but I'm so glad she could be here. And, and so first, we want to thank you, um, uh, the women of the church who uh, mother and spiritual mother and care and nurture and support and what you do is just so sacrificial. It's why we want to thank you today for what you do. Now, we've been in a study at Granada that has been about our church vision. And church visions are sort of like, I think as Jeff talked about it last week, sort of like the gut, you know, the, the things that keep us focused on what we need to be focused on as we're walking with God. We've talked about worship and, and about community, how we walk together. We've talked about serving as a people in, in the city and also serving one another here. And today we look at that which really undergirds everything. How is this meant to work? I mean, it's a mystery, right? I mean, how do you get people from so many different backgrounds and cultures? By the way, if you are in Spanish ministry or Portuguese language ministry and you're here in the service day, would you raise your hand, let people see where you are? Okay, so this time they're normally, yeah, isn't that great? So, I mean, we have people born in countries all over the world. How does this work? How does God pull this off, knowing how broken we are? All of this sort of came into focus for me recently. I don't know if you, you, love, um, if you love the British people or that culture, but if, if, like me, you were up early, what was it, a Saturday ago, you had the opportunity of watching the coronation of King Charles III, right? This great event that's been anticipated for a long time. Maybe you're like, okay, what's the fuss about? Um, a lot of pomp and circumstance and so on. But I think the beauty is in the stories 
that are beneath all of this. Because as you show that picture there, that guy who um, placed the crown on the heads of the new king and queen is the only person in their world entitled to set apart a king and queen. You may not know his story. His name is Justin Welby. And by the way, as a child, he grew up with depression and he still struggles with depression today. He actually also had no interest in God. He didn't go to church, didn't grow up in Sunday school, wasn't a part of the church. And now he is the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is like the Pope in the Anglican Church. And you say, how in the world did this happen? What is this guy's story? And the fascinating thing about it, it wasn't until he was a young father and his daughter, who was not quite one year old, was killed in a car accident in Paris that he began to ask questions about, well, what is this thing about God? And is faith real? And, and what is this church that's been around me all these years? And it sent him on a search that led him to a real faith in God and a faith in Christ and ultimately into ministry and a very unlikely here to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. This beautiful picture. But before he became Archbishop, let me tell you about what happened to him. Before he became this, this man who, by the way, he wasn't interested in God and so on, and he discovered that his father was Jewish. And not only that, his father had a terrible reputation. By the way, the English kicked the Jews out of England in the year 1290 um, A.D., and they were allowed to return, of course, but here he's got, here's this guy who's head of the church, who they're now discovering is half Jewish. This highest seat of the church would be held by such a man, but that's not all. He rises that to position of power, and one day in a London newspaper, this headline is printed. Archbishop conceived during mom's drunken romp with Churchill secretary. What? You've got to be kidding me. But it's actually true. Before his mom and dad married, just a couple days before, his mother had a liaison with the person who was the private secretary to Winston Churchill. You'll see him in the picture between our President Eisenhower and Churchill. That's his biological dad. And he was just discovering that. And so can you imagine, by the way, DNA tests proved this was true. And his mother confessed to the whole thing. And in the newspaper, it went on to say, he's a bastard that this is the highest guy in the church the guy with all this pomp and circumstance that's resting the crown on the king and queen of the British Empire don't you love this you see how God works? I mean, he takes the people who are the greatest mess you can imagine, and he shows that he's a redeeming God. He loves us when we're at our worst or wherever we've come from. And the reality is, this is what undergirds all that we are as a church. That God has loved the least, those far from him, those who in our world really wouldn't have a chance. He set his affection on people. Let's pray together. Lord, if there's a message we need to get, if we're to walk together as a people, Lord, we're so different. There's so many different cultures represented in this room. And, and Lord, if we were to sit down together as a big group, we wouldn't find that thing on our own that we have in common. We would not be able to walk together. We'd have no reason to build relationships and community here. 
but it's in the gospel that you have brought us together. Help us to understand this gospel so that we can rest in your love and help us to learn how to join the mission of Jesus in the world. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now the New Testament puts it super simple. It says this, for it is by grace, God's free gift of love to us, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, there's no secret here. This is the engine of our church. It's how we can, we can believe that we can get together. It's all gift. You could call it the gift love of God. That, that God loves you despite how you came into the world or what is in your story, where you've been, or what has happened to you. Despite addictions that you may harbor or doubts that you live with every day, God loves you. But let me tell you, this is shocking stuff. And, and, and the reality is this, though I think we like the idea of grace, I don't know, I find it hard to really like grace. I mean, do you ever see somebody, maybe you've watched them or you know them, and you see grace unfold in their life and you know they do not deserve this. It will irk you. Or if you have somebody you've hurt and you go to them and ask for forgiveness and they really do forgive you, they will release you of that debt. You don't want that to happen. You don't even want to need grace. You see, we live in a culture that's built, we build our lives on what we can accomplish, what we're able to do. It's called a meritocracy, right? It's about individual accomplishment. This is the American way. It's about being successful. It means getting into the right school or college, getting the grades, landing the right job, and, and then moving up through success, and status, and this is all about trusting yourself. And by the way, we pump this into our kids. It's graduation season, and, and we want these kids leaving college and high school to launch. We expect them to make something of themselves. But you know that researchers are discovering right now that parents are increasingly giving conditional love. What I mean is this, it's not I love you, full stop, it's, I love you if you don't fall off the balance beam. I love you if you get the grades. I love you if you're able to put together, pull together a life. And the reality is this, it's, it becomes terrifying for our young people. They're afraid of the smallest mistake because they know it could blow up their life or the smallest favor, failure because they have nobody to blame but themselves, and the pressure of this, by the way, is enormous. This expectation is captured for me, and by the way, it, re it goes into the top best-selling books every year at graduation season. It's Dr. Seuss's Oh, The Places You'll Go. Maybe you've given it out or received a copy yourself. It's the story of a boy who's reminded of all his amazing talents, and gifts, and then his total freedom to choose the life however he chooses it to be for himself. This is part of it. He says, your brains, you have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. And fame, you'll be famous as famous can be with the whole world watching you win on TV. And will you succeed? Yes, you will succeed. 98 and three quarter percent Guaranteed, of course you can do it, it's all guaranteed. 
But let me tell you, I want to encourage our young people as much as anybody wants to. But we're teaching them that it all depends on them and that they can control their circumstances. You don't have to live long to know that you can't. We're telling them, hey, you can make it happen. And we teach them this because we believe this. We think we can live this. But the result is a graceless age, one that presses them to compete with each other, one that they're afraid to be known for someone to really discover who they are, that they're not as good on the inside that, that, they, that they look on the outside. Because they made themselves really look good. One where there's no toleration for weakness or mistakes, and it makes them afraid of losing status. And it's like living in a, in a desert of isolation and fear. And you know, the gospel and what the church is all about is exactly the opposite of that. It's based on a love that we didn't, merit. We didn't do something to receive. It's all of grace. And that's what I want to look at with you today from the passage that Sherry wrote, that everyone needs grace. Now, our text is a parable told by Jesus to sort of pull down what you would call the meritocracy of Israel at this time. And by the way, he's at the banquet of a chief Pharisee, one of the guys whose highest status who's most recognized, he's there at this meal. And the reality is this, the Jewish people believed that one day God was gonna hold a great banquet. Here's the prophet Isaiah talking about it 700 years before Jesus. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Now, I know it says all people, but the debate among the Jewish people is, okay, who is God going to invite? Who is going to be good enough to be worthy to sit at the table with the living God? He's only going to have the best of the best. Only good people, only law-keeping people, only people that have a great track record. By the way, nobody, they said, who is lame, nobody who is deaf, nobody has a defect, could ever be invited to this banquet. Now, I read this and I think, I think that's what we think about God, that he's interested in some people, people that maybe have good lives or have done good things or people that feel like they they have their lives together. And by the way, many people also believe, well, that's who the church is for. It's for people whose lives look good. But this is why we also end up hiding our weaknesses And we only tell parts of our stories because some other parts we really don't want people to know. We want people to see us as shining and together because then we feel like I can fit in here, right? And so for many people coming to church, it is very scary for us because you look around the room and you feel like, man, I think all of these people are doing so much better than I am. We really can feel that. And you're comparing your insides with how other people have made themselves look on the outside. And that always make you feeling like, well, do I belong here? And will I ever be enough to be here? By the way, you have to be super brave to come here to church for the first time for that reason. Because you're like, well, am I going to be accepted by these people? These are religious people. They're spiritual people. And you wonder if you have a place. And then, wow, it takes even more courage to hang around 
until you can discover how real the other people are that are around you too, how much they struggle, right? Wondering then if God loves you. So at this banquet, Jesus is there, and one of the guests says this, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now it's his way of saying this, hey, you're blessed if you're like me, because I'm gonna be invited to the feast. I'm one of those guys that makes it. And so Jesus responds to this word by telling this story we just heard. He tells the story of a wealthy noble who invites guests to come to his banquet. And then he sent out his servant to round up the, those who were invited. But when he does that, all the guests, they make excuses. They can't come. Two of them had business obligations and developments. Another one got married. And it's a huge disappointment for sure. But notice what the master does. This is what he says to the servant. Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And you hear that and you say, whoa, 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 hold on a minute, Jesus. Aren't these the very people who would be excluded from God's banquet, the, the lame people who are broken like this? But this is exactly Jesus' point. You see, they believed all these people were already under God's judgment, or they wouldn't be poor, crippled, blind, or lame. You see, grace is God adding to his welcome list people that we would never believe fits in. It means including people who are broken and people who are far away and, and people we would look at and wonder how they're going to fit into our community. God has extended his invitation to, him, to them. It's God calling, for example, the liar, Jacob, and, and, and putting his blessing on this man, even though his brother Esau probably was a much greater character, was a better man than he was. It's God sending Jonah with a message of, of repentance to the city of Nineveh, likely one of the worst peoples alive at that time. Grace is the father running out to meet that son who wanted him dead and wasted half of his estate. Grace, you see, is not treating us as we deserve, but it's God treating us as Jesus deserves. It's being loved despite our unloveliness. I like what the priest Brennan Manning said. He said this, my trust in God flows out of the experience of his loving me day in and day out. Whether the day is stormy or fair, whether I'm sick or in good health, whether I'm in a state of grace or, or disgrace, he comes to me where I live and he loves me as I am. He's not waiting you, for you to get to another place. He's not waiting for you to get your life together. This is what his grace is all about. It's not him finding you where you should be. He's loving you where you are. And now I shared the story of Justin Welby at the beginning, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was asked about his father and this discovery about him. And this is what he, what he said. To find that one's father is other than imagined is not unusual. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics. Wow. God loves us, he says. And by the way, he says, he's given you a new identity as his daughters 
and his sons. And it is this scent of grace that must wave through the church all the time to sustain us and all that we do. And by the way, God repeats this story over and over again. You can find it all around in culture. I don't know about you, but I loved um, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton about Alexander Hamilton. Have you seen the musical? It's powerful. It's amazing. But you know what the opening words of this are? Telling the story of one of our founding fathers in this country? Here are the opening words. How does a bastard orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished in squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar. How in the world does that happen? Who would plan this story? Right, you hear this and you're like, oh my goodness, who does God work through? And who does God choose to love? And by the way, Hamilton knew this. He knew he should have never gotten to where he was and never been where he was at the headwaters of the forming of a completely new country. By the way, his mom died when he was young and his dad took off. He, he hardly even knew him. But God set his affection on this man. It's beautiful. But the question is, is this what drives your story? Or do you see your story as a self-made story? That it's all up to you, right? That you make it happen. Or do you realize that it's really all gift? Everything that you have has been given by God. And after a while, you begin to realize this is what's gonna animate my life. I'm loved by God. I'm loved by him. By the way, I skipped over. There's a very brief detail in the parable. I purposefully skipped over. Here's what Jesus said. The servant came back and reported to his master all the excuses. Then the owner of the house became angry. I skipped over that part. Yes, the very people invited to the party refused to come. And Jesus, I think, is referring to those people in the Pharisee's house that he's having dinner with right there. Because grace has been extended to them and they're like, nope, I don't need that. I'm, a, I'm actually a good person. I don't need this from God. They look good and faithful. They were putting the best show on possible. They were pretending to love God, but they didn't really love people. And they were caught up in legalism. There was pride and arrogance with them. And they were far away from God. And in the parable, the owner is actually angry over this. Why should he be? Well, his love had been rejected. The intent of those guests who decline the invitation is to humiliate the host and to prevent the banquet from taking place. And there's a dramatic moment. He is angry. What is he going to do with that anger? He could seek to retaliate against them, right? Because they've hurt him. Or he could insult the ones who have declined his invitation. But instead, he directs his servant. He's like, go out there and gather people. Go to people not worthy of being seated at the table. People that could never repay him for his kindness. He chooses the way of grace. And what this teaches me is grace is always costly. Of course, Jesus' parable anticipates what Jesus himself will do. And it's why he's telling this parable for goodness sakes. It's why he's hanging out with Pharisees. Why is he with these guys? He loves them. He wants them to come to the banquet. He wants them to see their true need of God. And so loving, loving costs Jesus at every turn. He finds himself in the crosshairs of those very religious leaders, rejected by his own people, 
And you can see step by step, he's moving toward the cross. Where did that anger, the righteous anger, by the way, of the owner go? I'll tell you where it went. It fell upon Jesus himself. It fell upon him as he died on the cross so that when God looks at you, he would not have any anger toward any of us over our lives. Do you know that that's right? Do you know that God isn't angry with you? He's not disappointed in you. That because of Jesus, he only has love for you. Oh, I know you've hurt people, but God loves you. I know there are days when you think this is all a sham. There's nothing to God and none of this is real. You doubt it all. God still loves you through all of that. Oh, I know how judgmental we all are of other people. God loves you. It's not changed by that. So what if you rested in that? What if you really began to trust that as you live? Now, I know we live in a world, I would explain it like this. We live in a world where if we fulfill expectations, we'll be loved. And if we don't, we won't. It's as simple as that. But this is not God's way. He has no expectations of you, by the way. But there is always a cost to grace. And this is how Jesus can share this story and make this invitation. It's how he can promise a woman caught in adultery that he doesn't judge her. And how he can protect her from those who would. It's how Jesus could go to a tax collector and say, hey, come follow me. Become one of my disciples. And as Jeff shared last week, it's how Jesus could go to the woman at the well who was using men in her life to fill that hole in her heart and extend his love so clearly to her. It's how he welcomes Pharisees and prostitutes and priests. And it's how he could love somebody like me. And it's how he could include somebody like you. He knows it all, and yet he loves you without limits. But let me tell you, there's a cross in the middle of his love letter. Or I might say it like this. The invitation to the feast comes, and it's bloodstained. It's bloodstained with the, with the blood of Jesus. I had the privilege, I mean, I encourage you to hunt it down if you like to watch stuff like this of watching the four-minute video of a young man named Brant Jean. You'll see a picture of him at the end of the trial of the female police officer that killed his brother just a couple of years ago. What happened was the female police officer was going into her apartment, got off on the wrong floor, walked into the apartment she thought was hers, saw a man in there she didn't recognize, and she just shot him. She didn't talk to him. She just shot him in cold blood. That young man had not done anything. And, and so here is this young man, the brother. He just lost his brother. This is the worst thing he could imagine ever happening to him. The violence and death was so unnecessary. And he took the stand. You'll see a picture of him on the stand. And he shocked everybody in the courtroom. You can see the heaviness of having to bear so much darkness. And this is what he said. I, I love you like anyone else. He said, I love you like I love anybody, and I forgive you. I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I want the best for you. And the best for you would be if you gave your life to Christ. And as he's sitting on the stand, he, he asks to the judge, he says, would it be okay if I hug her? And the judge wouldn't even answer. And finally, he pleads to her, and he says, please, 
Please, is it okay if I hug her? And finally, the judge says yes, and he crosses the courtroom and just wraps her in his arms. You can see in the picture, the judge is crying because there's a power to mercy and grace given that is overwhelming. And in the middle of all of that, you're overwhelmed because you know how much that costs. What does that take to forgive and release from that kind of debt? I mean, you're drawn into this moment. Love costs. Jesus bears the cost so that we can be cleared of guilt, so that all we know is the embrace of our Father. And this is, this is how we can walk together. We're invited to the great banquet. We're forgiven. We've been given such love in Christ there can be no fellowship. By the way, there can be no fellowship here that's healthy if there isn't a cross in the middle of it where when that person slights you or there's a misunderstanding, you trust that Jesus is enough and, and you rest in him as a result of that. When you feel hurt by somebody or misunderstood and you trust that Jesus has taken the anger and he's nailed it to the cross, that's how we can love one another. But that's not the end of this parable. You can almost hear the excitement of the servant as he returns to the owner. He's gone across town and he's invited people to come in. But listen to him. He says, sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be filled. Don't you love that? He's like, hey, there's still room. I want to invite more people. And I think that's Jesus. That's his heart, right? He wants the table to be full at his father's house. And that's how we came to be included. Jesus came for us. And yes, the master says, yeah, go out and get him. Go do it. And this is the extent of God's love. Forget about the limits you've assigned to my love, God says. Go further out. And he says this, compel them to come in. Why does he say that? He's not saying force people to come to me. It's not about that. Think about it. Without status, how would people out on the highways believe that a noble would really want them at his banquet? How are they gonna believe that they'd be accepted? And I think that's where people people live today. We don't believe that God is interested in us, that, that he's seeking us, that God loves them and has a loving plan for their lives, and he seeks fellowship with him. By the way, he's not looking for anything from them. Do you realize that in this parable, in Jesus's parable, the people are not being asked to do anything but come? That's all. He doesn't say when you get your life together, when you figure things out, when you look better. By the way, you need to change clothes. All he does is say, come. That's what he's doing. It's a beautiful picture. And this is the mission of grace we share as a church. To remind people every day, you are loved by God. The Father has a place for you at his table. To show God's love to people who doubt it. And for them to see such love in us that they can begin to believe that God loves them. We want them to see, we want to see them at the feast. Our Father wants the tables to be full. Listen to Jesus. He says this. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor. In other words, invite those far away, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. My favorite feast story that's outside the Bible is by Itzhak Denison. She wrote 
out of Africa. And it tells the story, it's called Babette's Feast. It tells the story of an 18th century Christian community, Christian community in Denmark that has lost its way. It's become joyless and it's a place of ungrace. Babette is a refugee from Paris who came to live with two women there. For 12 years, she serves as their housekeeper and she prepares the humblest food. You'll see a picture of her from the movie. Then she wins the French lottery, an untold amount of money. You see, every year, her number was continued to be put back in and she actually wins. But before she leaves, she asks if she can prepare a meal for that whole community. And that's what she does. She, she prepares the most exquisite meal you can possibly imagine with course after course of the richest of foods and wines. It's an overwhelming, and it, and it climaxes with this dish of, of baby quail. A visiting soldier remarks that he had only seen such food at a famous restaurant in Paris. And as the meal unfolds, the community, they rediscover joy. Feuds are ended. Sins confessed. One person attending who's now heady with wine announces what they have all been missing. This is what he says. Mercy and truth, my friends, have met together. Righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. We have all been told that grace is to be found in the universe, but in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be limited. But the moment comes when our eyes are open and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing of us but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. And a beautiful thing happens. The community, they go outside of the place where they're feasting and they stand around the fountain in their little village and they sing songs of worship. I mean, they're transformed into joy. Meanwhile, the sisters find Babette trying to clean up from the feast. There are a lot of dirty dishes. And she has a faraway look in her eyes. And she says, I was once a chef in Paris. She was that great chef. And the sisters say, we will all remember this evening when you have gone back to Paris. But you know, Babette will not be going back to Paris because that untold fortune she won in the lottery, she spent every penny of it on the banquet so that they might get a glimpse of grace. And you see, that's what Jesus has done. He has spent everything on the banquet so that you might be able to glimpse how infinite God's grace is and how much he loves you. And he's now come out and he's invited us to this celebration of joy in the love of our Father, the God who created us. And he's invited us to live in this joy and this awareness of God's grace. The question is, though, have you responded to the invitation? Have you responded to this grace to God in your life? Or is it all about you and it all depends on you? Or do you realize your life is held together that God is the one who has always loved you from the beginning? And now are you willing to live in that love with with all of us, right? We're all a mess. But the good news is we're loved by God. And we belong to each other through Jesus Christ. And then would you be a part, along with that other servant of which Jesus is one of saying, 
There's room at the table. We want the Father's table to be full. Would you pray together with me? Father, it takes us a lifetime to learn about your love because, Lord, we don't believe it. We're so critical of others, and, Lord, we are deathly critical of ourselves. We sit in judgment of ourselves. We hate ourselves for our past misdeeds. And we can see every flaw, not just when we look in the mirror, but when we think about our stories and our lives. And somehow, Lord, we've been led to believe you, some, you feel toward us like we feel toward ourselves. And then we discover it's not true. That you've loved us in Christ. That you take broken people and make them archbishops. And, and you take people who've made huge mistakes in their lives and you do, uh, you give your grace through them to show them and to show all of us that it's all about your love. Lord, help us to be such a community here. I pray that everybody's here, Lord, that we would recognize just how great your love is for us and we too would join the feast. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Can you stand and join us in worship when we